you have your Bibles, if you'd open them to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Last Sunday, we began our study in the book of Galatians. It is a letter that Paul wrote, and perhaps the first that is the earliest in the New Testament of his, to counter false teaching that has come to the Galatian churches. One of the things we saw that marked Paul's ministry is that wherever he went, there you could bet money that there'd be people behind him trying to pervert what he had taught. Or they would come behind him and persecute him. There is direct persecution. So we saw last week, then some Jews came from Antioch in Pisidia to Iconium, which is in Galatia, so one of the Galatian churches, and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe, which is also in Galatia. So we have direct persecution, but we also have indirect, I guess you could call it persecution, in which we have Jewish believers who are saying to Gentile believers, welcome to the family, but you still lack something. You know, what Paul taught you was, was good, but it was incomplete. Um, the strategy, and I mentioned this last week, that first of all, they challenged the authority of the messenger that Paul really isn't a capital A apostle. He's not one of the 12, so you can't take him too seriously. And secondly, they would challenge the authenticity of his message. If he's not one of the 12, then we're not so sure that what he's teaching is in fact authentic or correct. And finally, they would then challenge the authority of the message. You don't have to listen to what Paul says because, in fact, it's not authoritative. Last week, we began by discussing two main points, and that is the place of story in the epistle and then the format of Paul's opening in the first five verses. Today, as we continue, I want to consider these two points in reverse order, the format and then the place of story, but come at it from a different angle. First, the format. As we've seen in the ancient world, and when Paul is writing this, what people would do is, first of all, they would put their name. So I, Damon, am writing to. The second thing they would put is the person or persons being addressed. So instead of putting it at the end, you know, sincerely yours, and then signing their name, they would put it at the beginning, I am, this is who I am, and I am writing you. Okay? So the person writing, the person or persons to whom the letter is addressed, and then finally, a greeting of some kind. Hi, how are you? you know. In Paul's case, he would say grace and peace to you. Um, so the person writing is Paul. And right off the bat, he wants to make clear he is, in fact, an apostle. If you look at verse number one of Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not or sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me. We talked about this last week. Um, Paul is a capital A apostle, but he doesn't stand alone. He has the brothers and sisters who are with him as he writes this letter. Then he writes in verse 2 to the churches in Galatia, and then finally the greeting in verses 3, 4, and 5. Grace and peace to you 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. These are the three parts, but there's usually a fourth part in the ancient letters whenever they would write, and it usually was a form of thanksgiving. Among the pagans, it would be a thanksgiving to the gods. I thank the gods that this, I, you know, that this finds you in good health, that you are doing well. Um, and we find this in Paul's letters as well. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1. So it starts out with the format. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. So this is the normal format. Paul's writing, to whom he's writing, grace and peace, and then I thank God. Second uh, Corinthians 1, I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God every time I remember you. So one would expect that that's what we find here in Galatians. And in fact, we do not. What we do find is a form of letter that was, I wouldn't say common, but if you use a particular word, people are like, oh, it's one of those kind of letters. It is a letter of rebuke. Um, instead of giving thanks, Paul begins with a rebuke. Look, if you would, at verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, now, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. In the King James and the ESV, let him be accursed. Paul is following a format that was known in the ancient world. It is a form of letter that expressed disappointment. So the person writing to the person they're writing, a greeting, and then like, I'm really disappointed. I am astonished. I am amazed at what has happened. That somehow the person writing has heard news about this person and they're not happy about it. And so they are, in fact, writing a letter of rebuke. Um, there is a particular word, if you found this word, uh, thaumadso. If you got that in your letter, you know, oh, okay, this is a letter of rebuke. Um, it's translated differently, like, I am surprised, I am astonished, I am perplexed, I am amazed, I wonder about you, and it goes on. If this letter showed up at your house and you opened it and began to read and you saw that word Talmud so you knew I'm in trouble I'm in serious trouble I'm about to be rebuked by the person writing let me give you an example um, this is a letter uh, from before the time of Paul 
I am very much surprised, my son, that till today I have not received any letter from you telling me about your welfare. Nevertheless, my master replied to me promptly, for I am quite distressed at not having no letter from you. So this is a letter saying, why don't you write? Why haven't I heard from you? What we hear from Paul in his use of this word is real dissatisfaction. And it indicates that there has been a breakdown in communication between himself and the Galatians or the Galatians and himself. So instead of giving thanks, like he does with the Corinthians, which like, well, not so sure I'd give thanks because they were really messed up, or the Philippians, for whom Paul was very close, we in fact find him rebuke. And Paul, well, in the letters, they usually give reasons for the rebuke, and Paul will give several in the course of this letter. But he begins with the fact that they have been disloyal to God. They have been disloyal to the gospel. You are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. Um, In letters of rebuke in the ancient world, there was, okay, this is how you can make it right. There is sort of a prescription. This is how you correct the situation. This is what we will see in chapters 4, 5, and 6, where Paul says, okay, I've told you what's wrong, and this is what you need to do to correct the situation. You'll notice that Paul is not saying that they have deserted, but they are deserting. They're in the process of deserting the one who has called them. They're starting to turn around and leave. And Paul wants to stop them before they go too far, before they get to the point where they'll say, well, you have deserted a complete, you know, an accomplished fact. You have, in fact, done this. They are so quickly deserting. Now, lest we think that the people in Galatia are really terrible, terrible people, um, this is something that we hear in the Old Testament as well, when God through Moses, is speaking to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 9. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once. He's on Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and the Lord tells him to go down. Because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt, they have turned away quickly from what I commanded them, and have made an idol for themselves. Then he continues, when I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourself an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. In the book of Judges, in which we find sort of a pattern of Israel backsliding and then God delivering them and then them backsliding. Then the Lord raised up judges or leaders who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Um, Years ago, when I preached through the book of Judges, we noticed this pattern that the people would turn away from God and worship false gods, and God would then send someone to deliver, well, they'd be oppressed, God's judgment on them. They would call out to God, God would send a judge, he or she would deliver them, and they would return. And then for about 40 years, they'd be on the straight and narrow. 
and then they would slip back into idolatry. Um, and I remember very distinctly a conversation after that sermon in which I talked about this. Uh, someone said, you know, 40 years, he says, in my life, it's more like 40 minutes. You know, that you, you do what is right and then you so quickly forget. And in the words of the hymn, come thou fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It is a part of the human condition even after God has begun an amazing work in us and has saved us, we tend to walk away. One could make the case that the Galatians turned not right after Paul and Barnabas left them, but Paul and Barnabas left, and then these false teachers come in, and that is why the Galatians have turned away from the truth. And they seem to have done so rather quickly. They didn't, we don't find this, this debate like, no, you guys are false teachers. What You're saying something different than Paul. They quickly leave what Paul and Barnabas had taught them. Again, let's not think poorly of them or more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Um, how quickly do we turn from a God-centered view of things to a self-centered view of things? But to what is it that the Galatians are turning? You are turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Um, the NIV is not helpful here, because Paul uses the word different two different times. And we have this uh, in the King James, where in fact they have turned from the gospel to a different gospel, which is not a, it's not a different gospel at all. There are two different words that he uses here. One speaks of a qualitative difference. In other words, it's quite different. The other is it's, a, it's different, but of the same kind. What Paul is saying to the Galatians is, you have turned away from this gospel to something that isn't a gospel at all. It's not, it's not even in the same category. It's not like, okay, gospel, and then they bring something in, and it's like, it's sort of off. Uh, no, it's, it's not even gospel. It's not even in the same category. They were turning away from the truth, and they were turning to error. That's not exactly what Paul says, is it? If you look at it, you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. If we're not careful, we will think that they had doctrine and now they're turning away from doctrine to false doctrine. True teaching to false teaching. But that isn't what Paul says. They are turning away from Christ. This is personal. This is not some theoretical abstract, you know, your, your guy's theology is sort of messed up. No, they are abandoning a relationship that they had with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not abandoning a theological position, a philosophical or doctrinal position. They are turning away from God who loved them, who sent his son, who gave his life, and so, as I mentioned last week, the verse that Dan had quoted from Galatians 2.20, yeah, 
who loved me and gave himself for me. They are abandoning a personal relationship. And I told you, it was 35 years of preaching before I actually preached through Galatians because I think I saw it as a theological treatise and it isn't that at all. This is a call to return to a personal relationship with God. And how did this happen? Well, Paul says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. That is to say, the Galatians are turning away because there are those who are perverting the truth. And the Galatians are actually quite confused. They are thrown into confusion by those who are there to trouble them. This language, by the way, is the opposite of what Jesus told his disciples the night before his crucifixion. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Um, these people who have brought in these teachings are in fact creating confusion and not peace. As to who they are, we will see as we go along in this series. But I would say on some level, it really doesn't matter. Because look at verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the, that, other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. In other words, if you turn from the truth, if you turn from Christ, uh, the consequences are eternal and they are condemnation. Verse number nine is not mere repetition, okay? But you'll notice what he does is he says, as we have said, go back to verse number one. Who is writing this? Paul and all the brothers with him. So this isn't Paul like throwing a fit, throwing a tantrum, saying, I taught you one thing and now you're believing something else. Uh, it's like, you know, we, the brothers, this is what we, this is the gospel, and you're turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if an angel came down from heaven and taught you another gospel, then let that angel be eternally condemned. Um, it is worth noting that there are religions that claim to follow scripture but they have additional revelation from an angel. Um, and that revelation is different than what we find in Scripture. And Paul says, it's not acceptable. It is not acceptable. Angels are important, okay? Um, in chapter 3, verse 19, we read, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. So when Paul, I'm sorry, when Moses is on Mount Sinai and is given the law, the angels are there. I mean, angels have a function, okay? But their function is not to teach a gospel different than what Paul and the apostles had taught. Um, when Stephen gave his defense before the Sanhedrin, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels... Okay. 
but have not obeyed it. In Hebrews chapter 2 we read, For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Angels are important, but they will say what is in line with what we find in Scripture, what is in line with the person of Jesus Christ. What is this all about with the angels? Uh, In Deuteronomy 33, as Moses blesses Israel before his death, this is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Parent. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. In other words, Moses says, when God came to Sinai, he did not come alone. He came with tens of thousands of angels with him. I'm going on and on about angels, but in fact, it becomes sort of a stumbling block for different, in the early church, uh, in Colossians uh, chapter 2, do not let anyone who delights in false humility humility and the worship of angels. So there were some people who were saying that they needed to worship angels. No, that's not acceptable either. Um, We think that, in fact, people spent so much time talking about angels, in fact, that angels had become the focus of their teaching. And Paul says, listen, angels are great. The law was put into effect by angels. But if an angel comes down from heaven and teaches something other than the gospel, then that angel should be eternally condemned. It's kind of harsh language, if you wish. Um, We'll look at this next week, but look at verse number 10. This is a transition before he begins his story. Um, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Um, our natural response would be, well, of course not, Paul. Of course not. You're, not. you're not trying to win the approval of men. Okay? But in fact, the false teachers are accusing Paul of not teaching complete truth. And they are there to supplement and to fill out what he has left lacking. Um, Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. You are deserting Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you. I'm astonished. I'm rebuking you because you have so quickly abandoned your relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord willing, beginning next week, we will look at Paul's story as he tells it. Uh, Last week we talked about the place of story, and I want to review a bit and then expand on it. Um, Oftentimes people see the Bible as a manual, as something that contains rules and regulations and instructions. But in fact what we find is something quite different. I read this to you last week, but I'll read it again. This is from a book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. First, let's be clear. The Bible is not merely some divine guidebook. 
nor is it a mine of propositions to be believed or a long list of commands to be obeyed. It is no accident that the Bible comes to us primarily by way of narrative. But just not, not just any narrative, here we have the grandest narrative of all, God's own story. That is, it does not purport to be just one more story of humankind's search for God. Note this is God's story, the account of his search for us, a story essentially told in four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. In this story, God is the divine protagonist, Satan, the antagonist, God's people, the agonist, although too often the antagonist, with redemption and reconciliation as the plot resolution. They begin, these two men who wrote this book, begin with creation. Since it is God's story, it does not begin as do all other such stories with a hidden God whom people are seeking and to whom Jesus ultimately leads them. On the contrary, the biblical narrative begins with God as the creator of all that is. It tells us in the beginning, God that God is before all things, that he is the cause of all things, that he is therefore above all things, and he is the goal of all things. He stands at the origin of all things as the sole cause of the whole universe in all its vastness and intricacies. I would suggest to you, as I did last Sunday, that the way that God conveys truth to us is through stories. Some might say, well, yeah, I, I get that. The Old Testament, that those are stories for kids in Sunday school, you know, in storybooks. Uh, and in the New Testament, the Gospels, and maybe the book of Acts, but when we come to the epistles, that's, that's not story, that's pure proposition. Um, and some people have even said, the Old Testament is Jewish, it's Hebrew, and the Hebrews love to tell stories. Um, John the Baptist and then Jesus come along with the 12 disciples. They are Jewish, so they tell stories. I mean, one-third of Jesus' teachings in the gospel are parables. He tells stories. But when we get past the book of Acts, we now have Gentile believers. We have Paul, who is preaching to the Gentiles. um, And they take a more Greek, a more philosophical approach, a more propositional approach to sharing the gospel. And I would argue that this is, in fact, wrong. And the book of Galatians is, in many ways, the perfect book for us to see that story is how God conveys his truth to us. I want to look at one particular doctrine today to try to make the point that God teaches us through story. Let me ask you a question. Is the doctrine of the Trinity found in the Bible? One writer puts it this way, it is indeed in the Bible if one abandons modernity's notion that a statement or proposition in so many words as formulated is the only way that a doctrine can appear there. In other words, unless we have a chapter and verse that says to us, God is Trinity, we can't believe that, in fact, there is Trinity. So we do not find the proposition, we do not find the statement that God is three in one. 
but we do find the three persons of the Trinity of the Godhead found in Scripture. And how do we find them? In the form of stories. Okay. Now, let's do a detour here for a moment. I acknowledge, and I hope that you do as well, that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And, and people would say, there's no Trinity because it's not in the Bible. To which we should gently say to them, yes, but the word Bible is not even found in the Bible. Okay? These are words that the church has used, or in one case created, to convey truth that is found in Scripture. Um, we think that the word Trinity came in the second century, a man named Tertullian, in Latin, Trinitas, uh, to describe the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. Um, the Trinity is a revealed doctrine in Scripture. It isn't something that we, like, oh yeah, I think that God is made up of three persons. This is something that is revealed in Scripture. It embodies a truth that we cannot discover on our own. But how is it revealed to us? It is revealed in story, in incidents. Now, we, will, we do have references in the epistles that speak of the Trinity. Here in Galatians chapter 4, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Spirit. Okay? And the benediction that we use every Sunday from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and the love of God, that is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit, be with you all. But let's begin at the beginning. In the Old Testament, do we find the Trinity there? Well, we do at the very, very beginning when God said, let us make man in our image. As God created humanity, there, there's a hint. God doesn't say, oh, by the way, we're three persons and one. But the language that is used indicates that there is something going on more than what we can comprehend on our own. But then we have a series of stories throughout the Old Testament. The first one that comes to mind is in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, three men come to Abraham. You remember the story? And then one of them later says, he sends the two down to Sodom and Gomorrah and he tells Abraham what's going to happen. But listen to how it is recorded. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And then later in the story in chapter 18, we read five times, the Lord said, he's speaking to Abraham, the Lord said. So this is the Lord who appears as a man, because there are three men, two are angels, we're told in chapter 19. Okay. So the Lord appears as a human being, as a man. The chapter ends with these words, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. In Genesis 32, we have the story of a man wrestling with Jacob. We went through that fairly recently. Afterwards, Jacob says of this, this encounter, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. 
We have the well-known but I think often misread story of Moses and the burning bush. There, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange thing, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. We have numerous incidents like this where God appears as an angel, appears in human form. Okay. Now keep that in mind because later on in the book of Exodus in chapter 31, that's 33. Moses says to God, show me your glory. I want to see you. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Wait a minute. Abraham saw God. Jacob said, I've seen God face to face and, and I'm still alive. What we find here are two different members of the Trinity. We have God the Father speaking and saying, listen, I, you can't see me and live. But we have God the Son appearing in human form uh, from time to time. And then we have the Holy Spirit who appears at the very beginning that the Spirit of God was on the face of the waters. Um, when Israel was told to build the tabernacle, we are told that the Lord filled Bezalel with his spirit to give him the skill necessary to do the task required. We have a fascinating story in Numbers chapter 11. Um, the Lord put his spirit on the 70 elders of Israel but there are actually 72 elders. But he puts his spirit on the 70 elders and they begin to prophesy. But there were two men in camp who, their name's on the list, but somehow they didn't get the memo to be at the meeting, uh, Eldad and Medad. But the spirit came on them as well. It's fascinating. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent, that is to the tabernacle. Yet the spirit also rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man came, uh, ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. It's a tattletale. They're, they're prophesying in the camp. Joshua, the son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And in fact, 
The prophecy of Joel is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when God pours out his Holy Spirit on all his people. So we have these stories. We don't have a proposition. We don't have a doctrinal statement. This is the nature of God. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. But we have the stories, and the church over the years has seen these stories and has come to the conclusion that, in fact, God is three persons and one. We have stories in the New Testament that point in this direction as well. Do you remember the story of the baptism of Jesus? As soon as Jesus, he's God the Son, was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we have Jesus, who is God the Son, being baptized, the Spirit coming on him in the form of a dove, and the Father saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, we have him speaking of coming to do the will of the Father. And we also have him speaking of the Spirit. If you love me, you will do what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So, why do all this? Because I want to impress on you that if we are looking at the Bible as a theological textbook, we will miss what God is doing. He is telling us the truth, and he is doing so in the form of stories. And from these stories, we may derive these truths. That's what Paul is going to do in this letter, by the way. He is going to tell a series of stories to persuade the Galatians that they have gotten off track and they need to get back on the right track. There are other things, by the way. We believe that God is transcendent, that God is eminent, that God is above us. He transcends reality, but he is also in the midst of reality. We don't find either word in the Bible. I looked. Okay, They're not there. But the reality that God is both transcendent and eminent are shown through various stories and incidents, like the one with Moses where God says, you cannot see my face and live. God is transcendent. He is holy. What about God's character, God's attributes? Here we are told specific things, like God is merciful, God is mighty, God is love. So we do have these statements. But in reality, what we find are story after story that illustrates the fact that God is merciful, that God is all-powerful, and that God is love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. So we are given specific information, but they are undergirded, they are supported. The foundation are these stories in which these characteristics, these attributes of God are illustrated. God is patient. If you doubt that, God is long-suffering, read the Old Testament. His people time after time left the truth. 
and God was gracious to them. In the face of their idolatry, they repented and God restored them. So, let's put ourselves in Paul's place. You hear about these people who are leaving the gospel that he had preached to them. What are you supposed to do? Do you create an argument, you know, point by point, point one, point two, point three, to counter the false teachings of these false prophets? Paul tells stories, tells a series of stories, first his own in two parts, then the story of the Galatians, the story of Abraham, the story of the curse, the story of the promise, and the story of the law. This is how Paul makes his argument. After the service, if you have any questions about this, you can talk to Shelby, because Shelby loves to tell stories of what God has done in her life. Uh, Shelby is not a theologian, no offense, um, but she does have stories of God's grace in her life. And this is what Paul is doing as he writes this letter of rebuke to the Galatians. Okay, so I've spent a lot of time on this, but the story of the Trinity, far too often we use the word God And I don't think we mean Trinity. And I think part of the reason is because we are thinking only in theological terms, doctrinal terms, and not in the story of Scripture. If we read the Gospels, we learn of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read the Epistles, we learn even more about the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is, in fact, the Son. And that he and the Father have sent the Spirit. But if, if... all of it is just doctrine to us, then I think we have a very superficial view. In fact, when Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting, we're like, oh, this is heresy. This is apostasy. Maybe this is even blasphemy. Well, when we think of heresy or apostasy, I think we think in in, in impersonal terms, in Uh, propositional terms. This person used to believe the truth and now they no longer believe the truth. They had good doctrine, now they've got bad doctrine. Um, I have here a definition. Heresy is seen as an opinion, doctrine, or practice contrary to the truth. Apostasy is defined as the denunciation of one's religion, principles, or cause. Blasphemy is irreverence toward religion. I think Paul would reject all of these. What does he say? You, have, you are deserting the one who called you. This is personal. This is not some impersonal theological problem. This is a very personal matter. They have put their faith in the Lord Jesus, and now they are turning away from the Lord Jesus. We will see later on that Paul speaks of knowing God and being known by God. That is the gospel, not some theological construct, some doctrinal system. The Galatians have been guilty of abandoning a personal relationship. And Paul's like, I rebuke you, you know, and I'm astonished that you are in the process of leaving a relationship, a relationship in which Christ has shown you great grace. 
if we do not read scripture, when we think of God, we will have a very narrow view and we will miss the fullness of the truth of who he is, what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do. The Galatians had been told the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about a relationship. He, they are now being adopted into the family of God. And now they're like, yeah, we don't want to do that anymore. We want to go in a different direction. And Paul says, let me correct you. And he does so by telling stories. Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely confess that we are people of the modern age. We are children of the Enlightenment. We want things to be put in propositional form, in the form of principles. And in, indeed, we can derive propositions and principles from your truth. But we need to take care that we fail to recognize how you communicated these truths to us. The Old Testament isn't just material for Sunday school classes. It is, in fact, the revelation of who you are. And the Gospels that tell us the life of Jesus are not simply you know, to tell us stories. They tell us who he is and, in turn, who you are. The book of Acts tells us of the work of the Spirit. These are not theoretical or abstract things. I, I suspect, being the people of this age, we may think in those terms. And the truth becomes impersonal, becomes a matter of facts or systems. May we, as we go through the book of Galatians, come to see how, in fact, you have communicated to us the truth of who you are, who we are, and who you've called us to be, and the work that you are doing in our lives. You are love. You are merciful. You are mighty. You are patient and long-suffering. And we have so much evidence of this from the revelation of yourself in Scripture. May we take that to heart. In a few moments, we'll have a business meeting and we'll be talking about what you have, in fact, done in our lives. May we see it in that light. And as we look to you for wisdom and guidance and what you would have us do in the coming year, may we again see it in that light. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for sending your Son. We pray this through him and in his name. Amen.